Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about China and the corona crisis and how it is going to change the nature of EU-China relations. Last year, the European Union published a strategic outlook in which it talked about China as a partner, a competitor and a strategic rival. And this began, I think, a, a very lively public debate about the nature of the relationship between China and the European Union. But since then, COVID-19 has come out and transformed the world around both Europe and China. And I'm absolutely thrilled today to be talking to Professor Shang Langxin, who is a professor of international history and politics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. But Perhaps even more importantly, he runs the Centre on the One Belt, One Road in Eurasian Security for government-sponsored uh, think tank in, in uh, university in Shanghai. So, Lan Xin, why don't we launch straight into it? How do you think that corona is changing the international order? Well, there are many, many speculations now. Personally, I still believe Henry Kissinger's argument makes more sense. That is to say... It will change forever. Great power relations. The question for me here, of course, uh, what uh, my understanding of Henry Kissinger, whom I know, is that um, the trust issue. The fundamental problem is that the uh, the trust between great powers, in, in this case, of course, the United States and China, is in real crisis. Whether or not this mutual trust, which has been built steadily uh, since the 1970s, at least, between PRC and and the United States. It's in um, a rapid, I would say, almost like a free fall condition. So that will fundamentally change the international order in the sense not so much of the mechanical arrangement of the order itself. It is the mutual trust which will lead. There is a a possibility even lead to a, a Cold War condition. And how much of that breakdown of trust do you think is an inevitable result of the changing balance of the power, the fact that China has gone from being a fraction of the size of the US economy to being almost the same size, and that all of this money is obviously allowing China to to invest in military modernization and build different kinds of relationships with its neighbours? And how much of it is about you think, specific political choices which are being made either in in Beijing or in Washington? I think this is more a political choice made uh, in Washington. Having said that, I'm not saying what what Chinese have been doing should not be criticized. There are a lot of things you can criticize. But the the initiative uh, of going into that route uh, of a semi-Cold War path, uh, that initiative is taken by Washington. Uh, The reason, I, I guess, is... It's more a mentality. I consider this is a a typical Anglo-Saxon view of world order based on the logic of the rise and the fall of great powers, which I I think it's a long tradition for that, at least since Edward Gibbon, rise for the Roman Empire. So there is a panic. Now, not only there is a panic in, in the West, in the U.S., on the rapid rise of China. But there is also, I believe, a miscalculation, I would say, or disappointment with China. That is the uh, failure of what is known as a convergence theories. 
which they entertained for a long time, believing that China and the United States will eventually converge, not just the national interest converging, but they, their imagination is even in the political system. Somehow, China will converge to the Western model. Now, that does not happen. The last, uh, I would say, five or six years under Mr. Xi, uh, that seemed even far apart. So this is, I think, uh, the two reasons, I believe, mainly that Americans decide to take that uh, initiative. What they, they would call decoupling, even in economic terms, but uh, it's, it's a far more serious than economic de- decoupling. And what do you think that will lead to? Do you think that we could see a, a complete remaking of the global economy and the global order? I mean, the idea of decoupling is premised on the fact that unlike the Soviet Union and the United States of America, China and America have been so bound together that they almost have a single Uh economy. Do you think that you could end up with with different blocks like in the Cold War? Not really. I think the key difference here is the West is two. It's no longer one monolith. We are talking about the United States on one side and the rest of the West on the other side. I'm not talking about they are taking... The other side, you know, of the West taking clear side with China. That's not the issue. But they are not taking the side with the U.S. on the question of a new Cold War with China or even with Russia. So I, we are not seeing bipolar blocks coming. That's impossible. That's my view. You can say several different blocks. So what sort of world order do you think we're going to emerge towards? My sense is going to be tripolar, more likely. That is to say, uh, European Union probably end up playing the balance holder uh, a role, very much like Britain's been doing for a long, long time, <laughs> holding the balance for the continental Europe. That's my sense about the future. Uh, at least it's tripolar. And yeah. what about the rest of the world? Where do Russia, India, South America, Africa fit into this tripolar world that you're talking about? They are probably closer with the China, if you want to put China in the block. You think India is going to be part of the Chinese block? Yeah, India is not going to jump on the bandwagon of uh, a militarized Cold War style Indo-Pacific strategy. That, that's my feeling about India. If it's become a, a seriously designed uh, military institution, I mean, as a result of this uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, India will not jump on the bandwagon. So even India may not be an ally or in any way with China. But I, I wouldn't say India will be on the part of the US if the new Cold War does come. These are all things that have been going on for, for a long time. And, and obviously, yeah. COVID has, has brought some of them into the fore. Can we speak a bit about how China's handled the COVID crisis? Because I think you've been quite critical of of some of the more aggressive diplomacy coming out of China at the moment, the idea of wolf warrior diplomacy. Can you explain what wolf warrior diplomacy is for people who haven't been following these debates as closely? (laughs) Well, this is, yes, this is issued a very hot debate right now in China. Myself has stirred up a lot of dust on that. This is, I think, is wolf warrior culture or wolf warrior diplomacy has been in the making for at least 10 years now. The basic thinking is that uh, the assumption that the Chinese domestic system, perhaps it's better than the system, the Western model of liberal democracy. Now, that has been something, always a controversial issue before. Very few elite, including intellectual elite or policy elite, believing 
that the Chinese system is uh, superior to the Western system until about 10 years ago. The main argument is that uh, the concentration of power for a big country like China actually works much better than the chaotic uh, democratic system. So it is, I will say, from the very beginning, that mentality often labeled self-confidence. Remember, Mr. Xi Jinping said, score self-confidence. <laughs> That's one, one of the most important parts of this, try to build self-confidence. I think it's wrong from the very beginning, which uh, give, I will say, blow up their self-confidence to the extent uh, beyond reality. I think the, the biggest problem is that it's even deviated from the Chinese uh, tradition as well. Not only is it wrong, in fact, Chinese system uh, is not superior to Western system, but uh, also it deviates from the Chinese traditional uh, value system, basically saying different cultures can live parallel you know, ways. So it's not necessary for China to use its own model to criticize or to belittle the other political models in the world. So this is, I think, it's the beginning of that ideological shift in the name of building self-confidence. Now, therefore, in recent years, uh, Chinese diplomats, I would say, particularly propaganda, official propaganda has embarked on this wolf warrior culture, publicly promoting Chinese model, which I don't believe exists, okay? publicly criticizing Western model, during this coronavirus, they are even promoting the idea that the Western model finally is going downhill because they failed to deal with this as well as the Chinese are supposed to have done successfully. So that is a very dangerous path. But uh, recently, the Chinese are reflecting on this at the top level, as, as far as I know, and also foreign ministry and the intellectual uh, circles. I would argue many agree with me. <laughs> Uh, with my interview, uh, but many do not. Okay, so we are still debating very heatedly. But the official posture of wolf warrior culture, as you can see, remarkably declining. Just last week or so, you, if you compare with the, our diplomat or uh, press spokesman behavior, uh, let's say only 10 days ago. So there is a remarkable improvement. I hope they will come back to reality. So Wolf Warrior, for people who are not aficionados of, of Chinese films, refers to a couple of right, war right. action movies called Wolf Warrior and Wolf Warrior. Right. Yes, that's the name coming from that. Chinese uh, warriors finally become so tough. It's like a, a Rambo. The best comparison for me would be Rambo, a Stallone movie at the time, you know, the early 80s. Except the moral center is an elite People's Liberation Army unit fighting against Americans and other mercenary groups rather than Americans <laughs> fighting against right. the Vietnamese. It's a, yeah, it's a Rambo kind of uh, culture. But surprisingly, I must say, People's Liberation Army wolf warriors, or the, you can say hawkish generals, actually, many of them publicly support my view now. <laughs> so this is very different. But the intellectuals, the, these are the so-called government think tank people, who, yeah. the wolf warriors, they are still stick to that idea. We need to be tough with the West. But yeah. one of the things which is, which is a bit confusing to Europeans is that the, the US-China yeah. relationship has been getting more and more tense for the reasons that we talked about earlier for a long time. has obviously accelerated with, with Donald Trump. But if you are serious about having a three-pillar world rather than driving Europeans into the arms of the Americans, 
then mm. one would have thought that China would not have had a wolf warrior approach towards European countries. So what's been very surprising is, is how aggressive Chinese diplomacy towards Europeans has been in recent times. Oh, yeah. No, no. no. You see, that's, that's why that wolf warrior culture apparently undermines China's overall strategic objective. That is to have Europe as some kind of a buffer between U.S. and China. I'm not talking about a zone in the sense of war, in the sense of, you know, as another West with a soft uh, approach to China, which China can deal with uh, as compared with the very aggressive approach on the part of the uh, Trump administration. So, yes, shooting on, on their own foot. This is why they are turning down right now as we're speaking. You will notice that. They already realized this. I was told uh, by many from the within the system. They, they sent me emails, sent me Wei Xing, you know, the Wei Chat, to say um, what they heard is that uh, there are instructions for them to tone down this wolf warrior culture, especially with Europe, maybe even Australia. But it's very absurd in my view the way they, they our ambassador dealt with Australia. It's unacceptable yeah. from my point of view. <laughs> the, so the Chinese ambassador was threatening the Australians, but threatening to withhold medical equipment and masks from, from Australia. Oh, no, no. The, the, the language he used, the threat he, he proposed. Now, in Europe, I wouldn't say it's uh, the Wolf Warrior culture is very, very tough as it's with Australia. But yeah, we do have an ambassador in Sweden who sometimes uh, gone a little bit too far. I don't think our ambassador in London or even in Paris that bad <laughs> with the wolf warrior culture. But they are readjusting. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say, especially with Europe. What you're describing is, is the fact that in Beijing, the way that China has coped with the crisis has led to a kind of surge in self-confidence, which may be similar to what happened after the Lehman Brothers in 2008, when people noticed that the West was doing less well at coping with, with the financial crisis than, than Beijing had beforehand. Well, that's, that's exactly why, why the wolf warrior culture starts. It basically starts immediately after the crisis in uh, 2008, 2009. They think Western economic system collapsing. Our system continue going at a double digit, right? So why we don't have a self-confidence? So one challenge for China is, is how it handles its growing power. And we've kind of talked about that quite a lot. What do you think the other big challenges coming out of Corona are? I mean, one important issue, you work a lot on the Belt and Road Initiative. Through the Belt right. and Road, China has, has lent billions of renminbi or dollars to lots of different countries around the world, but particularly in the global south, in Africa, in, in all sorts of other places. Many of these countries are now going to struggle to pay off their debts. How much of a challenge is that for China? I'm sure it's going to be huge. It's not just the issue of uh, debt repayment questions. It's the issue whether or not many projects can continue at all, especially some big projects. But again, you know, Chinese uh, offered financial help. The most uh, yesterday, of course, uh, the president offered uh, what twenty billion dollars or, or something. So China will have to continue to finance the, those projects. Uh, it's already halfway, but we have to away and see how long this uh, corona crisis lasts, because that's the most critical issue. In China, it's relatively under control, relatively speaking. I'm not uh, completely confident yet, but let's see Africa, Central Asia, you know, those areas, Pakistan, 
where most of the uh, Belt and Road projects are operating. How long that crisis is going to last? Well, that will be crucial for the fate of this project. So one of the dangers, though, is that, I mean, people are reporting that the Chinese government or institutions are often trying to use the the debt problems that countries are facing to extract political favours. There's a whole big debate about debt traps and debt diplomacy. And some of these debates are becoming quite public now. For example, in Zambia, there was uh, a recent very public kind of crisis where, where they were complaining that they were being bullied into offering its copper mines to, to Chinese creditors in exchange for debt referral. How much of a problem do you think that's going to be for the Chinese image, this idea of debt trap diplomacy? Yeah, certainly it's not good, but I would, uh, I've been to many of those countries to, to, to watch the operation, to see the operation on the, the, the first hand. I will say you really have to do uh, make a judgment on case by case. I will say at this moment, it's still difficult to generalize what kind of conditions Chinese get in return for, 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 for those projects will alienate the locals. I'm talking a majority of the locals. It depends on what project we're talking about. In that context, one of the, the other interesting debates that's yeah. coming out of COVID is this idea of dependency and diversification. People have discovered that a lot of their products are produced in China and they worry about some of the problems like you know 90 percent of antibiotics are made in China all the problems of getting um, face masks and other medical supplies and this is leading to a new debate in Europe about the diversification of supply chains our colleague Andrew Small who I think uh, you know well as well has just written a, a paper about the meaning of systemic rivalry where he's saying that in many European capitals there's a big change in terms of how they think about the EU-China relationship. Before, they wanted to have a more reciprocal relationship and they wanted to be tougher on China, but the goal was to be tougher in order to open China up so you could have a a much more interdependent relationship with China. But now people are talking about actually making it less interdependent because of the the vulnerabilities which which COVID has shown. How do you think that that is going to play out and how does that affect Chinese grand strategy as well? Well, I... um always uh, prefer to, to differentiate the what American view on the same topic you just mentioned and the European view. American view, of course, uh, is they want to shift the entire, almost the entire supply chain back to U.S. Of course, dependency on China or that. For U.S., this is more excuse rather than the reality. I'm not saying that, that the United States are not serious because they that dependency actually benefited the United States quite a lot in the past as well for the cheap products. But Americans now taking China as the number one rival in the world. So I would say this is a Cold War mentality here. So it's a kind of a blockade. It's kind of economic sanction and a blockade logic at work. Now, European side, they want to reduce dependency on Chinese manufactured goods makes sense as well economically, but I seriously do not think Europeans treat China as a strategic or geostrategic rival to begin with. Therefore, European readjustment on that supply chain question, I will say will be relatively limited because for one thing that is the Europeans now realize, the coronavirus also provides a, a great historic opportunity for Europe or European Union in particular, to pursue their geopolitical ambition 
which I believe is defined by uh, von der Leyen as a geopolitical commission, or, or some European uh, think tankers call it a third way between Washington and, and Beijing. So European consciously try to build itself as a being another pole of the tripolar system, or the responsible one and a strong one. I doubt Europeans will do the same thing of decoupling as to the extent as uh, US would do. And do you think that China would like to have a European poll or is it more comfortable to have lots of bilateral relationships with individual European they countries? Love, they love to have a European to, to be a serious poll. They've been complaining by European being a, a lame duck <laughs> for a long time. As you can see, even yesterday at WHO meeting, with all this conflict or fight over the origin investigation issue, when EU, when this thing was the initiative taken by EU, Chinese reverse position, almost 180 degree, right? As long as you, EU has a wonderful reputation of being fair from many, not just China, from many countries' point of view. So in that sense, yes, China would be very happy, especially now the U.S.-China relationship deteriorates so, so, so much. But if Joe Biden wins, maybe there will be some change. <laughs> Traditionally, the Chinese have talked about wanting a multipolar world and the importance of the European poll, but the practice is very much about trying to deal with European countries individually or even setting up formats which include some EU members and not others, such as the format which is now called the 17 plus one, but used True. to be the 16 plus True. one. True. But that's the old approach, though. You see, Chinese historically never trust multilateralism. During the entire Cold War, even after, I would say, uh, up until the new century, Chinese is still, still has the reputation that, uh, up until the new century begins uh, as a G1 country. G1 means preferred bilateral deal. Uh, you know, or, or a more unilateral approach uh, to major issues uh, because they don't trust multilateral institutions to begin with. But gradually they learned the benefits of uh, multilateral institutions. Starting with WTO, they feel they do, they did benefit a great deal from this kind of institutions, then the UN system. Then, of course, the, uh, the most important event, I consider the most important event is a debate. UN Security Council uh, 2003 on the Iraq war. This is the first indication that West is not a monolith. Therefore, multilateralism makes sense for China. These are now taking multilateralism very seriously. Maybe I could ask you yeah. a, a last question, which is how do you think that COVID-19 has changed China? I think it's a, it's a very good change for China to force the government to be more transparent to force the Chinese leader to be more modest, which they already at, at now a little bit more <laughs> improved. And uh, uh, eventually, I will say, we'll push the system into, well, at least that will push China under a much heavier pressure of an open society, especially information, you know, freedom of speech and so on. There are a lot of works, diaries and so on that appeared during this crisis that really is very severely criticizing China's internal system. So I think this is very, very good effect. I think it will, will help kill China's uh, hubris to begin with.
lunch in it's been wonderful talking to you we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment where we ask people what they're reading at the moment what are you reading at the moment what would you recommend i'm reading uh robert skadelsky's uh canes uh the 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 massive biography of canes and uh i have read it you know a couple of times before now what's what, what's interesting for me of course is everybody thought uh, before this corona crisis canes are probably dead and uh, now canes have come back uh, <laughs> in full swing so i want to look at again what is the social political international and the economic uh, conditions at the time canes uh, made that proposal of a government intervention in the economy by the way, I'm also translated against this book into Chinese, which almost killed me physically. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'm going to recommend two recent pieces on the ECFR website. One is this piece, which I mentioned before by Andrew Small, called The Meaning of Systemic Rivalry, okay. yes. Europe and China uh-huh. Beyond the Pandemic. Also, Josette Borrell, the EU's high representative, wrote a long essay called The Post-Corona Crisis World is Already Here, where he describes a lot of these big systemic dynamics. But if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do head to your social media page or ours and and tweet about it. And hopefully also give us a positive rating on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to it. We'll put links up to all our publications at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Professor Shang Lang Xing and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Thanks a lot, Lanshin. That was wonderful. Mm-hmm.